On this episode of Inside Music Cast, we'll explore an album that was recorded and produced in 1995, but failed to get support from its label and fell flat in terms of its overall sales. Aside from the record label snub, this album was a diamond in the rough, a true blue-eyed late 70s soul album that was the right album at the wrong time. The album is musically adrift by bandmates Barney Hurley and Gavin Dodds, otherwise known as Samuel Purdy. Influenced by the likes of Steely Dan, the Doobie Brothers, and Earth, Wind & Fire, Musically Adrift revisits this great genre of music, and the ten original tracks stacks up with the likes of these iconic predecessors. You know that Today on Inside Music Cast, we welcome Barney Hurley from Samuel Purdy to go inside the magic of Musically Adrift. Hey Barney, thanks for joining us today. Hi there, how you doing? Good. Well, many of our listeners are already familiar with you, you know, and primarily for your 1999 album titled Musically Adrift by, you know, your yeah. band Samuel Purdy. And, you know, when you look at your website and some of the other interviews and things you've done, you aptly describe this album as the right album at the wrong time. And for those mm. unfamiliar with the album, tell us a little about the concept and the inspiration you had for that album, Musically Adrift? Well, the 
concept was to essentially make a great album and something that was non-disposable, uh, something that would uh, stand the test of time. Mm-hmm. Um, really, we were thinking a great 1978 Blue-Eyed Soul album. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, the inspiration came from our favourite artists, everything from um, Steely Dan to Mingus. And that certainly shows through on the album, um, you know, those influences. And uh, your, your bandmate, uh, Gavin Dodds, um, yeah. how did, tell us a little bit about how you met Gavin. And, and tell, I know you guys go, go back quite a ways, but tell, yeah. tell us about that and how Samuel Purdy actually formed. Well, me and Gavin have known each other uh, since I was 14 and Gavin was 16. So uh-huh. I think we go back about 29 years. Yeah. But Gavin um, was a guitarist and he was um, setting up a soul covers band, Mm -hmm. and he heard I was a drummer. So I joined his band, and we did James Brown, Otis Redding, and Marvin Gaye covers. And so that's how I I knew Gavin. But um, we also had an understanding that we'd do something else in the future. You know, like at the time, as I said, we were 14 and 16. So right. We were very young. But, yeah, we go back a long way. And um, so our f- first meeting was at school, and it was basically um, James Brown, Otis Redding, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder covers. We mm-hmm. did them terribly. but and, and I had a soundboard recording of one of the concerts. And you can either look at it like these guys are only 14 and 16. Well, yeah. Or you can look at it, it's terrible. <laughs> you know, but, you know, we gave it our best shot and it, was a, and it was a good, you know, it was a good starting point. Right, exactly. Well, you know, when we first introduced, um, or again, uh, introduced Samuel Pretty to uh, Inside MusicCast, um, you know, audience, um, yeah. You know, we first first started getting some responses of, "Hey, I like this guy, Samuel Pretty." Well, it's not a guy; it's the name of a band. So, if you could, please, uh, <laughs> for, for the benefit of us and our listeners, tell us about the name Samuel Pretty. How did, how did you end up with Samuel Pretty as the name of the band? Oh, it's really simple. It's a <laughs> double-barreled shotgun. It's a shotgun, and as we're huge CD Dan fans, uh-huh. we thought, you know, it sounded like a guy, and. Um, we wanted to confuse people, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, it just sounded like a cool name. Yeah. So, so we went with that. <laughs> I don't know my guns too well, but I had no idea that Samuel Purdy was the name of a shotgun. Me neither. That's yeah, cool. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a double-barreled shotgun, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you ever use it as an instrument in, in the album? No, no, we didn't. No. It'd be, it'd be, Bit, bit, bit too dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> and those, the gun's not a good thing to have around in the studio when you get mad no, your bandmate. No, definitely not. Not, 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 not with <laughs> really? my temper. <laughs> so being that this album was created and uh, released in the late 90s, it, it came at a time, you know, when the music industry and record companies still had quite a bit of uh, money to back talented artists mm. such as you and Gavin. And, and, you know, when I heard the album for the first time, you know, I personally remember thinking that this must have been a, a pretty costly effort as it's brilliantly recorded, produced and engineered. And, you know, you had a lot of really great supporting talent behind this record, you know, and a couple of names that come to mind are, Elliot Shiner, and you also had guitarist Elliot Randall on this album. So tell us a little bit about, you know, just the making and all the production qualities that went into this thing. Well, we 
weren't actually one of the bands at the time that were given a huge budget. Uh-huh. Lots of our contemporaries were getting quadruple what we got. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we were very frugal with the money. I think we were very, very careful. Like, for instance, when the deal was done, but we didn't know the budget we were going to get, I... Um, I wanted Phil Ramone or Arif Mardine or Tommy Lapuma or Gary Katz to produce it. Mm-hmm. But it just wasn't in the budget. Sure. So, so, so we had to do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I have, to give, I have to give some props to the chief engineer on the album who's called Brian Tench. Mm-hmm. He um, co-produced an album um, by the Bee Gees with Arif Mardine and he's worked with Kate Bush and Phil Collins, wow. and he was very, very, um, well, one thing he was was patient, mm-hmm. and also he was very good at recording things with, with, with no EQ, yeah. so or minimum EQ. Wow. So when it came down to the mixing, you know, the mixing engineer, you know, there, there wasn't too much hassle, you know, things weren't recorded hot to tape right. or anything like that. Um, so, um, and, um, Elliot Shiner, we, um, well, we knew we needed a fantastic mixing engineer Yeah. and who else in the world are you going to use? You know, the the guy's uh, phenomenal. Absolutely. And, um, we also use Bob Power, who, uh, is famous for Erica Badu. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh and D'Angelo, and he did a little a lot of hip-hop, like Tribe Called Quest and okay. Soul. But uh, the Elliot Randall story is interesting because we were recording, it was the first track we were recording, Lucky Radio, uh-huh. and we got a British guy in to, to record the solo, and, he, and I won't name any names. All I'll say is he was the first British artist to be signed to Blue Note, Okay. And he came in with a huge attitude, obviously didn't take our music very seriously, uh-huh. and basically left us with not a very good solo. And the engineer at the time we were using said, well, why don't you use Elliot Randall? So we said, you know, are you pissing us around? You know, <laughs> we, of course, you know, that, that you know, that would be perfect. I couldn't uh-huh. think of anyone better. And he says, no, I... I Last week, I, I engineered a uh, film score, and Elliot Randall was on it. And wow. so we were like, well, is he in the country? And he says, no, he lives in the country. So he lives in the UK. Oh, wow. So, you know, he was the man for the job, and he did a wonderful job on the album. You know, I've got so much time for that guy. He's not only a, a great human being, he's a, a stupendous guitarist. hmm Hey guys, well, let's take a break, and I want to check out a track from Musically Adrift, and this is Whatever I Do.
Eddie and I are both huge fans of this album, and I, I, I just think, you know, I've got a personal love for this album. It's, I didn't find out, I didn't find out about it like Eddie mentioned a second ago. I really did, you know, it was released in '99, and I didn't find out about it until just about five or six months ago, and yeah. uh, it's just stuck to me like glue. And it's, it's one of my favorites. It really is, and I'm not just saying that because you're oh, on the line right with me. But you know, if this album had been released, you know, in the 70s or early 80s, you know, I think it would have been huge in my opinion because it really captures that sound and that feel of that time period. But the fact that you recorded and released it in 1999 was, as you claimed, as I mentioned earlier, the right album at the wrong time. So tell us about the ideology, about the musical direction behind Musically Adrift and how you were able to get the record company to support this effort. Well, the record company didn't support it. I can't remember one time when anyone from the record company actually came into the studio while we were we were recording, which was a great thing. So we could just get on with it and, and Gavin and I produced it ourselves. Um and what we were aiming for was a great blue eyed soul AOR album yeah. from nineteen seventy eight. And um you know, I, I think we got it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you know, definitely the album is reminiscent of, of bands like you mentioned, like Steely Dan, and, you know, there's definitely like a Doobie Brothers feel there and maybe Hall & Oates, and I think you said Mingus. And, you know, I was curious about the the life of your band, Samuel Purdy. Why did you guys stop at just one album? Well, unfortunately, after we... It was, it was, it was a very bad experience, you know, putting in, you know, the best part of a year into writing, then recording the album, and then after one single being dropped, our our manager then went over to the States, and we couldn't get arrested. Everybody said the same thing. They said they love it, but they wouldn't know where to place it, you know? Yeah. And that's what we got everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, So... um, we we didn't have a budget, so so you know essentially we had to we had to stop at one album. Right. Let's talk about you a little bit. I'm very curious because you are a session drummer and a working session drummer, and but you've also toured with um, you know as a drummer for bands such as Jamiroquai and, and Mother Earth. So tell us a little bit about if you could um, about those experiences with those bands and whether whether you are or or not uh, connected with them now. Well, that's that, that's an easy answer. No, um, I haven't seen any of those guys since the mid '90s, and I didn't really like touring. It, it, I'm, I'm I'm a bit of a homebody. Mm-hmm. Um, the person I've been in contact with is um, Matt Dayton, and um, he's the singer of Mother Earth, and he's a Samuel Purdy fan. Mm-hmm. But apart from that. Um, when when we got dropped and everything went wrong, I literally thought, well, that was my go at being in a band, you know, hopefully a successful band, and it wasn't. So I got my Ludwigs and put them up in my mum's loft mm-hmm. and thought, you know, I've got to get a day job. Yeah. So you basically thought in, uh, of throwing in the towel at, at, at a bit. I, I, I did. I threw in the towel. I, after we couldn't get arrested in the States, mm-hmm. I thought, well, no, if they're not going to get it in America, yeah. 
then they're not going to get going to get it anywhere. Mm-hmm. You have a MySpace site, and I noticed that you have some project up there called the Cooley Baba Project. And if I recall, Cooley Baba was the name of a uh, a Steely Dan that's, tune that never was released. But um, that's right, yeah, yeah. But tell us about uh, this Cooley Baba Project, and, and there's some really cool stuff there. Amazing stuff there. Um, that was just everyone was making music at home. Yeah. Everyone had logic, and I thought, well, I might as well get that program. And I, I I invested in the program, and and it's got a manual that's bigger than War and Peace. <laughs> it's huge, yeah. and I can't follow manuals anyway. So I just actually got fr- so frustrated. I yeah. just put it in the bin. I should have sold it on eBay, but I just put it in the bin. Mm-hmm. And so I just sat in front of the computer and just just taught myself how to use it and basically what what you hear it it was basically a fun project it was me just um trying to put a few tracks together the reason it's called work in progress is because essentially that's what it is and i thought what am i going to do with these tracks Mm -hmm. and so i just put them on myspace and, um, yeah, I'm glad you like them. You know, I haven't listened to them for years, to be honest. <laughs> but, you know, I was I was also thinking about, you know, listening to the fact that you, you know, uh, composed those Cooley Baba tracks. I know you were an integral part of arranging and composing and, and you know, the, the Samuel Purdy album. And, and, you know, just being a drummer, What I was curious about who some of your influences were that shaped, you know, your own style of playing. Oh, that's a long question. <laughs> um, well, or just you know, a few. I, uh, uh, Ed Green, I think, is probably one of the most underrated drummers in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's John Gearing, uh, James Gadson, Hal Blaine, yep. Steve Gadd, David Gary Baldy. But when push comes to shove, my man is Beccaro. Yeah, He's tasteful beyond belief. Mm-hmm. I never tire of, of listening to him. Yeah. You know, the, the, he, he's just godlike. In fact, I'm actually looking at a huge, great uh, Jeff Beccaro Toto Pearl poster in my office uh-huh. at the moment as we speak. Uh, yeah, he, he's my hero. Yeah. You know, I, I, I still learn a lot from him, you know, even though he sadly deceased i think was 92 wasn't it yeah a lot of people share that same sentiment you know he, he's uh certainly to this day he still influences drummers oh, everywhere absolutely yeah. you know oh i love john robinson as well he's uh-huh. another cat that i absolutely adore that you know asking me my favorite drummer i could <laughs> i could probably write a book on it you know mm-hmm. yeah but 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 when push comes to shove it's Picaro. yeah yeah did you ever get a chance to meet jeff no. no, you know, I never saw, I've, I've seen Toto live a few times with Simon Phillips, and that's really just, just to see Steve Lukather, because I think he's such a fantastic player. Yeah, yeah. But, um, I, I, you know, you, you never think somebody's going to die at the age of 38. No, no, you know, it was tragic. You, 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 you think you're going to, you, you know, he was my, always my hero, so when... A, a drumming friend of mine, we were in a pub, and he said, Jeff Beccaro's died. Yeah. 
and I, I thought he was joking. Yeah. I, I just was, I just, I couldn't get my head around it. And he said, no, it's all right, you know, have a cry. I cried when John Bonham died, so I had a little cry, you know. It yeah. was a real loss, you know, to music. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, we've been talking about Samuel Pretty, but you, uh, as an individual, what kind of projects are you working on now? Have you gotten the bug back uh, fully and getting back into yeah. this? And uh, you know, you're talking to us, but are you involved in session work now? How uh, how much are you back into it? Well, since because we, Gavin and I, Samuel Purdy, never got any recognition. The only recognition we had was. In 1999, um, Lucky Radio was the fifth most played track on Tokyo radio stations. And and there were reviews of it, but they were all in Japanese, so we couldn't read them. And in 2009, when it was reissued, the 10th year anniversary, uh, we got to number one in the Kiss Ever. Kiss FM charts out there. So, you know, all that stuff's nice, but actually reading intelligent um, reviews from Q Magazine and Mojo and Uncut actually saying it's a good album, um, it definitely gave me the bug back. I thought, I thought um, I, I've got to do something. So I immediately contacted a friend in London who has a really nice home studio set up and um, when it's not booked I've been going up there working on a new project very cool Mm -hmm. hey Barney and Eddie let's take one more break and uh, let's spin another track from Musically Adrift and this is a track called Late for the Day
you know, like we've mentioned earlier, and you know, kind of our focus here today is on the album Musically Adrift. And in just a moment, we're gonna um, we're gonna wrap up the show, and uh, uh, we're gonna have you uh, name some names of the winners of the contest that we've had on our Facebook site. But but you know, the album itself, in my opinion, like I said earlier, is so wonderful, and every song in the album is. It's so well crafted, and it's you know full of these really infectious hooks, and it mus- it's just musically stellar. And there's a few tracks that stand out for me as real gems, and those are, as you said a second ago, "Lucky Radio," uh, "Whatever I Do," "Late for the Day." I really like "Santa Rosa" also, and you know I love the classical strings approach at the beginning of "Lucky Radio." But one thing that um, one thing that really stands out for me, and all across the board in this album, where it, where it applies, are the are the horn arrangements. And tell us a little bit about the horn arrangements on some of these tracks and and did you did you arrange those who did how did that come together the, the horn portions well you know i think i think when you're a huge tower power fan and a and a huge and an even bigger earth wind and fire fan yeah you've got no choice <laughs> um, uh if we were writing a tune and the, the, it lent and, and horns you know lent themselves to the tune but then we'd go and write a horn arrangement. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I'm a huge fan of, of well arranged horns, and, um, and and also, you know, we tried to an early Chicago kind of element in there as well, which is something that I hear now, mm-hmm. which I didn't hear when we were doing it. Uh-huh. It was kind of a subconscious thing, but we wanted it to be quite horn heavy, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It all came together beautifully. And, you know, if if I'm correct, and I don't know if you told me this, Barney, and I don't know if this is for public knowledge, but are you in the early stages of creating a, a new Samuel Purdy project? Well, that's what I was talking about, okay. getting the bug. Yeah. I, and uh, going up to a French studio in mm-hmm. London. And um, I've been up there for about a week. Uh-huh. And so far... We've got the we've got one track not da- not down but uh-huh. we basically it, it it flows very well and and I'm really happy I'm really happy with it you know um, it, it was funny because I contacted Brian Tench who was our chief engineer yeah. and he said yeah you know it sounds so Samuel Purdy. <laughs> Uh, and um, he didn't know that I'd done it on my own. So mm. when I finish it, I'm going to um, send it out to Gavin and see if he wants to be involved. But the problem being, Gavin lives in Australia. Oh, I see. Okay. And so I can't write with somebody who isn't in the same room as me. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, you know, this project, I hope to be a Samuel Purdy project. Well, we do too. It would be wonderful to see if you guys could put together a, a follow-up to that initial album. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I... Oh, well, you know, it, uh, we, we could, and it, and it would it would be better. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, actually. I can assure you. <laughs> Well, cool. Well, hey, uh, Barney, let's uh, let's pick some winners for this contest. We've got uh, we've got three Samuel Purdy uh, musically adrift CDs to give away, and we also have yeah. three Samuel Purdy T-shirts. Uh, and That's I right. think you've you've got the winners. So uh, let's let's start with the CDs, Barney. Give me uh, give me three names uh, that you picked out who uh, entered the contest. Okay. All right. Uh, well, there's Russ Norton. Okay. Rick Wilson and John Marshall. 
All right, congratulations, guys. I know John. Uh, John's a, John's a good friend, actually. Oh, okay. All yeah. right, lucky John. And then, uh, well, I guess if it's the same John Marshall, I mean. <laughs> 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 and cool. So, let, what about the T-shirts? Who do we have uh, for those? It's Jess J. Arquette. Okay. Bill Lepatka. Okay. And Lisa Hallam Whitting. Sorry. Whittingham. Whittingham. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we know her too. Awesome. Oh, you awesome. know her too. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. she. Well, we know these because they're all uh, inside Musicast. Oh, okay. So. Okay, I understand. So we've seen their name or communicated with them in one form or another over the years. <laughs> so awesome. Well, congratulations to everyone, and uh, we'll be getting in contact with you. Uh, those who want T-shirts, we need. We'll need to get your shirt size, and uh, we'll get those from Barney, and we'll send those out to you. So, hey, Barney, thanks so much for uh, joining oh, us. No, it's, is... been a, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I'd really like to thank you guys too for championing the album um you know you, you, you know all of you have been have been great well as as one of your song titles says we're kind of late for the day because we we you know we didn't find out about this album until 14 years after it was released <laughs> <laughs> but it's well, it, become... was, it was actually recorded in 1995 well that's true that's yeah. true yeah that's true so, so it was actually the master tapes were propping up my <laughs> brother's coffee table for four years <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a great time. <laughs> oh man! Well, Barney, this has been a great chat, and let's keep in touch. And, uh, and yeah, thanks definitely. so much. F- yeah, thanks so much for the uh, great prizes that we could give out to some of our listeners today. No problem at all. And to find out more about Samuel Purdy, they can visit samuelpurdy dot com. Is that correct? Of course. Yeah. All the my all the uh, sorry the uh, Facebook page. Yeah, Facebook great. page as well. Thank you. Thank, great. Thank thanks you so much, much, Barney. Bye. Special thanks to Barney Hurley from Samuel Purdy for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape, Mikhail Ingstrom, Uwe Wright, Scott Sheriff, Don Brightup, and Mats Unilon for their continued support and content development for Inside MusicCast. Inside MusicCast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Yeah,